Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 179 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us listener. Today we're going to be finding out about skiing in the Aosta Valley in Italy and discussing the effects of climate change on board sports. Now my name's Ian Martin, I'd like to introduce my guest today. I'd like to welcome back Sam Haddad, she was last on the show in episode 157 when she was offering advice in our snowboard special. Hi Sam, how are you? Hi Ian, not too bad. I'm kind of sweltering in Brighton at the moment, but it's nice to think about cold things and talk about snow for a, for a change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I know you're only down uh, the road from me and I think you're probably much nearer to the sea than me. Have you been down to the sea or got in it recently? Um, I was in it, not yesterday, the day before, and I'm definitely going to get in today. So, yeah. Well, we're, we're certainly lucky in that respect. Uh, great to have you back on the show. Also, I'd like to welcome today uh, Rob Reese, who's been on the show several times before, most recently in episode 167, when he reported from the Bergsill Ski Jumping Competition in Austria, which I particularly enjoyed. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm very well. It's a bit warmer than that day in Innsbruck, I must say. Uh, I'm luckily on holiday in the Vendée in western France so we've certainly been jumping into the sea a few times and sitting in the shade. Excellent well it's very kind of you to join us on your holiday I appreciate that and and for you finding the uh, time. You're on holiday uh, now a question that you know I think if you're a regular listener to the podcast you will know is I like to ask my guests when you last ski or snowboarded now we're in the middle of the year now we're probably about as far away as you can get from the ski season so it's a bit more predictable but Sam when were you last on snow? Um, Chamonix, um, February half term. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, it hadn't snowed for a while, but it had been cold at the time I kind of arrived at least. So the snow had stayed really nice, actually. So yeah, had had a really good trip. Cool. Uh, was that a family trip? It was a family trip. Yeah. Um, so I've not been back that my kids are 10 and 13. And I kind of wanted to wait until they were at a level where they could kind of do Chamonix justice. And um, yeah, it felt like this time they were actually they were kind of mad for it. So um yeah, because good. I think you used to live out there in Chamonix, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, so um, I did seasons. I, I kind of learned to snowboard in 99 in Chamonix, um, and I did season um, in the year 2000, 2001, and the year after that. Um, so, yeah, re- really good times, happy memories. Was it quite weird going back then to a resort where you used to live? It was really nice. I mean, it was, as, as I'm sure we'll get into later, it was discombobulating in terms of going to the Mer de Glace and just seeing how much it's shrunk. I know that we read a lot about the Mer de Glace, but to actually see somewhere where you've snowboarded and to look at runs like the Pas de Chèvre and think, well, how did I ever do that? Because hmm. you're kind of talking um, like huge amounts. Um, it was 118 steps to kind of get down to it when, when I was there before. And now it's 580. So it is it really the scale of it does become real. Um, when yeah. You OK, unfortunately, we will come on to that later. What about yourself, Rob? When were you last out on snow? I might know the answer. We might be talking about it later, but tell me anyway. Well, I've got to throw you a curveball. Oh, two answers to the question, because on real snow, the last day was the 2nd of April. And that was the most wonderful day in La Tuile in uh, the Valais 
Deosta or Aosta Valley, as we know it in English. Um, that was actually the best day of the whole season because we had wonderful snow a couple of days before and it was sunny, but the temperature held up. It was just above freezing. And obviously, one of the problems about all that snow that we had end of March, April, was it, it was accompanied with days that were 15 degrees Celsius. So it was, you know, slushy by lunchtime. But this was the perfect, perfect way to discover that area but i also skied a few weeks ago um on artificial snow at the snow center in hemel Hempstead, and i think you were at the same event uh, skiing testing some wonderful uh, dinosaur skis there and meeting all our lovely colleagues from the ski industry so that was the and that was the first time i'd actually been in a snow center so that was a, was it right was i didn't I, I i do recall that day i didn't actually ski that day um, but it definitely counts as far as I'm concerned. Any time that you're on snow, whether it's in, you know, a massive fridge or it's on a mountain, still counts as days uh, on snow. And although we are in summer, uh, you know, at the moment, there is uh, still some summer skiing out there. Uh, last year, I'm sure all listeners will know, uh, it was particularly warm and that affected, you know, what summer skiing was uh, available. But right now, uh, Val d'Isère opened last weekend. Uh, they didn't open at all last summer. Uh, plus, you can still ski in Europe in Zermatt and Hintertux, Leders Alp, and Teen will be opening uh, soon. And I'm really delighted to have a couple of snow reports uh, in from some of our regular contributors. Uh, Alex Armand from Tip Top uh, Ski Coaching is in Leders Alp, and she was on the glacier uh, earlier this week. So she sent us a report. And Steve Angus, who is uh, an instructor based in Val d'Isère, also sent us a report in. So let's have a listen to those. Hi, this is Alex Armand from Tip Top Ski Coaching here in Les Alpes with an update from Les Alpes Glacier. Uh, I'm pleased to say that we've got loads and loads of snow this year. Uh, conditions are fantastic. We've even had some fresh snow over the last few days uh, and a few storms. But the weather is cheering up and we're looking at clear nights and sunny days uh, with cold temperatures. So the snow should stay excellent with good free refreezes overnight. It's super exciting going up to the glacier at the moment because we can see all of the work uh, starting for the new Gendry Express lift, which will take us up to the glacier in 15 minutes and be ready for 2024 season. So not only uh, is it an exciting time for Desalp, uh, it's fab to be up there and skiing on our glacier. Well, you can never go too long here in Val d'Isère without getting itchy snow feet. And indeed, the ski season has just started um, up high on the Pisalar Glacier in Val d'Isère. And that was after, on time as scheduled, the colleges around the highest paved road in Europe opened uh, on Friday the 9th of June, which meant that on Saturday, the skiing started up there. Now, we may not be the biggest ski resort uh, for summer skiing, but we certainly have a lot of very, very keen people up there. And this year, the conditions, after what was a a uh, write-off last year, uh, snow-wise. This year, um, thanks to a very, very good late-season snow all the way through May, in actual fact, has opened this weekend to three-and-a-half-metre snow base uh, up on the glacier. Just incredible. At this time of year, uh, the skiing is dominated by lots of races and race groups. And it's quite unique because we obviously straddle up on the glacier between the Morienne and the Tarantaise Valley. So you've got race groups coming up uh, from the resorts on both sides um, of the Isaran uh, Pass. Um, and there is around about half a dozen ski clubs on a daily basis up there training. Indeed, the conditions are fantastic. 
um, with such a large amount of snow. And there is even talk, I've heard, of people being able to do a bit of off-piece skiing up there. Not a lot, uh, but the cascade chairlift and the T-bar up top means that there is a good amount of skiing, whether it be race lanes or recreational skiing, uh, or a little bit of off-piece to be had up there. Meanwhile, down in Valders there, we are gearing up for the actual summer season, which uh, is quite a low-key affair, really, compared to the winter. Um, but there are lots of fun activities where there are fairs and fairs on. Um, and, of course, there are lots of passing uh, travellers that have come over uh, the highest pass, as I mentioned, um, that are heading towards Italy or coming back from Italy. So it's quite an active place. And as I look out my window now, I can see all the town workers are busy putting out the beautiful arrangements of flowers which will decorate uh, the town uh, for the next three or four months. The weather will hopefully play ball and we'll have a lovely, uh, beautiful, hot summer um, with everybody smiles on their faces. And for once, we can put on shorts and enjoying the lovely uh, temperatures before we start thinking towards autumn and the start of another winter. Until next time, take care. So you can ski in uh, Europe at the moment. And in fact, the ski season in the Southern Hemisphere is just starting off uh, in uh, Mount Hutt in New Zealand. Uh, they opened uh, last weekend and they're going to be opening in Australia for skiing shortly. The snow has been a little bit sl uh, slow in coming. But I've been following that fairly closely because I'm actually going to Australia next month. Going to visit my mum, but while I'm over there, I'm planning to go skiing in Perisher and Threadbow. And I'll be reporting on that in the summer, probably in August. And if you'd like to know more about skiing in Australia and New Zealand, you can listen to episode 97, which was a special. Now, I also just want to mention uh, now that I was at Listex Luxury uh, earlier uh, this week. Uh, that's organised by Babsy Lapwood, who was recently on the podcast uh, talking about the National Snow Week uh, later on. Really interesting uh, event, great networking event, great to see so many people in real life. But some really interesting stats produced by James Gamble from the Ski Club of Great Britain uh, about the luxury market. And one of, I guess one of the most interesting things was uh, he was saying that it's only 8% of holidays, the luxury market, and that's defined as holidays that cost more than £3,000, but 24% of the revenue. So I guess that's probably unsurprising that uh, more expensive holidays are going to take up more of that. But, you know, some really interesting uh, insight into that market. Another one of the things that James mentioned in that survey is at top of the bucket list for luxury travel is a trip to Japan. Definitely love to go to Japan, but also on my list is the Aosta Valley. And Rob, you already mentioned you were there uh, not very long ago, back at the end of the season. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about it. And the Aosta Valley is obviously not just a single ski resort. It's, uh, it's several ski resorts. Where did you go to? Did you go to them all on that trip? Was it a road trip? Well, it was a road trip. I tried to do them, do them all in my typical sort of fashion, but... Um... This time we actually flew to Turin Airport, Casale, and Aosta itself is only 70 miles northwest of Turin. Um, and we basically tried to pick up three or four different resorts in the week. Um, obviously, Turin is a, is a gem of an airport because it's very, very small and it's so easy to get in and out of it. Uh, we went um, to the Aosta Valley, which is actually the smallest province in Italy. It's an autonomous province and it's only got 125,000 inhabitants. So it's a very sort of small place. Um, and it was actually the capital of what was called the Grey Alps in the... Uh, Roman Empire. So it, actually the town of Aosta is a very important crossroads historically. And obviously the Val d'Aosta was fought over by many different people over the years by the 
people from Burgundy, people from Savoy, obviously the the Romans, the Celts, the French. So it's a, a very interesting valley that's got lots of different historic and cultural in, influences. Um, obviously, the architecture is a little bit different because of all the different influences. Uh, you've got sort of very hearty food and it's an, and loads of very different skiing. So obviously, the resorts that people would probably know the best in the UK are Chavinia, which obviously gives you access to the Matterhorn and uh, onto the other side in terms of uh, <laughs> that's it. I, was, I was thinking everything bars there, Cormier, which is quite well known. It's just the other side of the Mont Blanc Tunnel, but it's a beautifully located valley. It's got the Valais in Switzerland to the north. It's got uh, Savoy to the west, and it's got Piemonte to the south and the east. So it's really surrounded by some beautiful um, areas, and you've got four very wonderful. 4,000 meter peaks. So you've got Monte Bianco, which is obviously known as Mont Blanc, Monte Chivino, which is known as the Matterhorn, Monte Rossa, and Gran Paradiso. Um, so it's a beautifully located valley. And we actually went and skied in a valley called um, the Monte Rossa Valley, which has got resorts known as Champoulot, Gressonet, and Alagna. We skied in Pila for the day, which is right, it's a ski resort just above Aosta. We skied in Chivinha, and we also then finished the trip in. La Tuile, uh, which links with La Rosière in France, which basically is where the little San, San Bernard Pass is. Um, and that sort of links to Borg Saint-Maurice eventually. So That's really interesting. You mentioned about uh, the, the geographical importance of it. And so just to kind of give uh, the listener kind of a sense for how that valley works, a lot of people probably know that if you go through the Mont Blanc Tunnel from Chamonix, then that's a start, let's say, or the end of the Oste Valley. And the first resort you're going to come across is Courmayeur. And you know, people probably know that you can link up to the to the Valley Blanche over on that side, as well as the main Courmayeur ski area. Go a bit further down, you've got La Tuile, which links to La Rosière. And that's yep. why the the uh, Petit Saint-Bernard uh, passed. That's correct, yeah. So historically, that's always gone there, over there between France and Italy. Um, then a bit further down, you've got Chavinia, and you mentioned Chavinia up on if you're driving down the valley on the left hand side, links over to Zermatt. Bit further on, um, Aosta. Uh, and Aosta links on that uh, to, to the valet by the Grand Saint Bernard Pass, doesn't it? That's, that's correct, exactly. And that's yeah, why. Yeah, and, and you can ski up to Pila. Uh, is a ski resort on the other side, very popular with uh, with lots of schools, and then a little bit further, Champeluc and Monterosa as well. So there's there's a lot of skiing along along that uh, valley there, and, oh. and 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 the geographical you know links. Obviously, there's lots of different ways of getting in there from Switzerland, France, etc. As you mentioned, and they have lots of like uh, sort of events like the uh, Tour de Routeur, which is a serious you know ski mountaineering there's lots of other valleys where there's great ski touring and there's heli skiing it's one of the few areas where you can actually heli ski so the real gem for me was uh, the sort of Monterosso ski area Champeluc in particular where I was staying so right so Champeluc so you mentioned the heli skiing I I did actually go to Alanya which is not in the Aosta Valley I can't remember what province uh, that is in like Lombardia I think is it it's in Lombardy okay but it's just a little bit further south uh, and that links over to that Monterosa ski area. That's correct. Yeah, and, yeah. and I recall some really tremendous free riding over there in, in Monterosa. So you spent some of your time in Champeluc and Monterosa as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, it's an interesting village. It's an interesting valley because it's had a bit of Swiss influence in there as well, because I think there's about, uh, it's the, called the Val d'Ass, the Ayas Valley. And there's about 2,000 inhabitants, and they actually speak a slightly different uh, language. They speak a patois there. Um, 
right. because obviously in the in, in the past, I think in the Middle Ages when the snow had melted a bit, the Swiss were able to just come over the mountain passes from the valley. So there's a little bit of an influence. The architecture is very different, much more like chalet-type buildings that you'd see in Switzerland. Um, and you've got sort of these big thick stone slabs on the roof. The food's a bit hearty, a bit more like that Swiss heartiness. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful area, really. So, And it's not that well-known amongst us. They're starting to get to know. We stayed at a, a lovely hotel called the Hotel Castor in Schomburg. And they, for the first season ever, they'd had the a Ski Club of Great Britain guide there. A lovely guy called Bryce. Cool. And and where else did you ski while you were there then? Well, we skied um, uh, into in Chavinia. That's a great resort. If you're not, I mean, a lot of British people haven't actually skied in it, and I think that's a big loss. Um, Chavinia is very snowshore, very good for the end of the season, which I've done a couple of times now. And you you can, for an additional, I think, increment of about thirty euros, pay to get access to Zermatt. So it's, if you want to ski Zermatt and not not spend a fortune, it's the back door to Zermatt. And obviously you can enjoy Italian food, which generally is a little bit more interesting than the Swiss food. But there's some very good runs in Chavinia. There's a 21-kilometer run that goes all the way down to Val Tonech. And it's, you know, it's, very, it's probably the, the most ski-in, ski-out resort I think Italy has. It's built up at altitude. In Chavinia, I think I'm right in saying that you know, they're, they're kind of quite flattering, big, wide pieces, aren't they? They are. They are. They're, they're, it's good fun, actually. It's a good sort of all-rounders resort. Lots of long intermediate runs. But you're sitting and seeing uh, Monte Chivino. You're seeing the Matterhorn from a completely different perspective. Um, and it's, you know, it's just a, you've got that Italian um, cuisine on the mountains. It's a little bit, you know, homespun. It's not overly commercial. And, you know, you're right. You can literally ski right back to your hotel. So. And, and did you ski in any of the other resorts on this trip? Yeah, we did Pila. Pila, for me, is one of the best day hills out there, I think. You literally can get the uh, gondola straight up from the uh, town centre. It actually goes across the water route that's going past Aosta. And it's a great hill. You've got some wonderful, obviously, you've got wonderful views, all those lovely 4,000 metre peaks I talked about earlier. And it's good fun skiing, you know, good, nice, some nice steeps. Um, and, you know, it's generally in the sun most of the time. And you, you just mix in with the locals, really. It's a local ski hill. I know you said that. A lot of British uh, schools went there, and it's the perfect place to probably learn to ski. Obviously, if you wanted a week skiing, it's probably not enough, but it's great for a day or two. And I've always had good fun up in Pila. Yeah, I mean, Interski, a very famous uh, British uh, ski uh, school ski company who base themselves in Eosta and take people uh, up to Pila. And I've been to Pila before because historically the uh, SIGB ski test used to be held there for oh, okay. many years. Okay. So that's yeah, when yeah. I uh, tried it out. But I love that idea that you can stay down in Aosta because I really liked Aosta. And you mentioned that uh, Roman influence in the valley. And what I recall is there's quite a lot of uh, Roman ruins in Aosta, maybe an amphitheatre as well. Is that right? Yes, there is. I mean, because of where it was, because it was a crossroads, it was effectively the crossroads between the Great San Bernard Pass and the Little San Bernard Pass. Um, it was a very hugely important militarily. And obviously over the years, it's been battled over by anybody who wants to have a battle over it. Um, so they effectively set it up. The Romans set it up in 25 BC um, after they drove the Selassie tribe out. Um, and they basically set it up as a military camp. So you've got a wall around it. You've got these two big you know, streets that intersect. There's an arch of Augustus and there's an amphitheatre. And it's really quite a wonderful town. I think a lot of people... You know, come out of Turin, just whisk straight past Aosta. But it's definitely worth um, staying. I stayed the first night there and had a tour around the, around the city. And it was really wonderful. You're looking up 
you know, these wonderful mountains all around you. It's a quite a steep valley. The Aosta Valley itself, just driving down it, is a wonderful experience in itself. And, you, you know, it's, most people just bypass Aosta. But it's, um, there's lots to see and do. And it feels very, very um, intimate and very, very real. You really do feel, you know, you, skiing feels a million miles away. It's a very sort of lived-in, authentic valley. Yeah, I mean, I really liked it, and I've I've actually stayed in Aosta in summer as well, as well as uh, Courmayeur uh, in summer. Done a, a bit of trail running in that area, and I think in general, one of the great advantages of uh, Italy over some of the other Alpine countries is the prices, the cost. Uh, I imagine you saw that, you know, in the valley, but also on the mountain in mountain restaurants as well. Oh. Totally. It's, you know, they're not trying to rip you off. That was the nice thing about Champuluk. Um, it's just they're not trying to rip you off. It's real people living in those valleys. It's not like gas. It's not like saisonaires in the valleys. It's the people live there and they make a living out of it. And they try and do a very good job and very, very friendly. And, you know, obviously everybody, even whilst it was France back in history and a lot of the village names you see look very French, um, they're all Italian speaking and, they, you know, kids are welcome. Food is a big thing. The wine is, is great. The cheese is great. And, you know, they just, it's just a very, you don't feel, and it's not, it's not to say this, you don't get the slickness, say, of a, the Dolomites, which has got the Austrian influence. You get, it's a bit more, um, a bit more homespun, but the food is always very good. The ski hire is very good. And I think even in places like Champlain, they've got a, a lovely a public spa area and, and they're, they're trying to gradually grow the business. And there is talk and there has been talk for many years of actually putting a lift from Champlain up to, Chavinia, which would obviously completely transform the ski area. But the Monte Rosso ski area, I think it's about 170-odd kilometres of skiing. And while I've skied some of the most delightful long blacks with nobody on them, it's just, it's an undiscovered area. And I think it's testament to the ski club of Great Britain that they put, they're putting a rep there. I've wanted to go to it for years and years, and I finally managed it this, this season. Yeah, well, I've I've been lucky enough to go to the Osa Valley several times, and that, that potential lift would be very uh, interesting because, uh, you know, straight away, technically, it would make it the largest ski area in the world. It would overtake the uh, three valleys by linking up the Monterosa area, <coughs> excuse me, with Zermatt and with uh, Chavinia as well. But whether or not that happens, we'll see. There are lots of long uh, lifts like this that are under discussion. And I know that one of the major issues is the environmental impact because they'd be putting in pylons across uh, a national park. Uh, and yeah. you know, it's quite hard to get that sort of thing uh, improved. But speaking of that um, environmental thing, there is um, obviously if you want to go by train to the Valle d'Aosta, you can get the TGV through France and that goes to Torino. And there was actually a very interesting scheme at um, Turin Airport called um, Alpine Green Experience where they have 500 new BMW 3i's which you can hire. Um, uh, for 68 euros a day and dry, and there's a number of partner hotels and a number of partner resorts and you can I think the they, and they give you minimal cost for ch- recharging the vehicles so there's a whole they're trying to do, you know create a whole sort of green piece to the valley up to the resort so they're really trying to take that whole thing very seriously and clearly it's an area where it's been part of the slow food movement Piemonte was where the slow food movement started so they're really in, you know in terms of food miles they're trying to use everything locally whether that's the polenta or the or the fontina cheese or what is a, a great range of lovely wines like fumin 
um, white wines they do as well. So Cool. I, I mean, that's very interesting about the Alpine Green experience. And I'll, I'll have a look at that and put a link in the uh, show notes itself. Uh, Sam, you were based in uh, Chamonix uh, for a, a while. I know quite a lot of people from Chamonix, they get that Mont Blanc pass, which includes Cormayeur. And then tend to you know go over to Cormayeur, perhaps on bad weather days and maybe when they want a bit of a variety as well. Were you one of those people who tried that? Yeah, during my seasons, actually, the tunnel was closed because there'd been the fire. Um, so I couldn't do it. On, on our season pass, we tend to go to, go to Verbier for that extra day. But I have done that since um, when I was in Chamonix in, in the kind of 2010s. Um, yeah, I really like Cormier. And I also really like Latouille. Um, La Rosière was was where I went quite a few times with the kids when they were younger. And we used to love that that sort of long button over to the Italian side and the landscape there with no development at all there. Yeah, well, you say that long button, that that link, uh, you know, I know La Rosier and La Tuile do link uh, very well, or do link, let's say, and allow you to ski both in France and in Italy. But it is an extremely long, if I recall correctly, double button lift double to get button. over there. When yeah. my kids were younger, that was yeah. really a little bit too much for them, because we, like you, we went to La Rosier, did yeah. three years there when they first started to uh, ski. But we'd put them in ski school and uh, my wife and I would uh, we'd ski over there. And we took the kids yeah. to um, the Col de Petit Saint Bernard, yeah. where effectively you're actually in Italy before you've yeah. even left the La Rosier ski area, yeah. where you can go and get yourself a hot chocolate. Where the hot chocolate, like in La Tuile as well, and probably all of the Oster Valley, it's so thick you can pretty much stand a spoon mm-hmm. up in it. Absolutely. Like amazing stuff. <laughs> Cool. That's brilliant, Rob. Thanks for sharing all of that uh, with us. I'm very keen to get back to the Aosta Valley again. I'd like to I'd like to go to uh, Chavinia purely because I'd kind of like to take my kids skiing in Zermatt. And I suspect that just like going on a holiday to Zermatt is uh, out of our price range. Uh, really. It's going to bankrupt gonna... us all in, I think. Yeah, yeah it's never going to happen uh, like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, thanks very much. That's brilliant. Uh, OK, Sam, I'm going to come back to uh, you. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you uh, on the show was because I've been enjoying your new uh, blog hosted on Substack, and it's called Climate and Board Sports, which gives us a clue uh, as to what it's about. I wondered if you wanted to tell us a little bit more uh, about it and why you started it. Yeah, um, I've always kind of been interested while stroke worried about how how the climate crisis um, is affecting snow sports. Um, The first article I ever wrote about 20 years ago was about the IPCC report and what that what that would mean for kind of alpine areas. Um, And I was thinking when I wrote that, I didn't well, I had no idea how it would sort of play out. And it really feels in the last three or four years, it's gone from being this future threat to something that I don't know anyone that has been to the mountains and hasn't experienced some effects of of global heating um, on their holiday, whether that's the big temperature ranges where you kind of get powder one day. And then, like you were saying, Rob, um, 15 degrees um, the next day um, or just less snow. Oh, yeah, just all, all the kind of factors that we, you know, worrying about rockfalls, the various things. Um, and every time I'm always kind of keen to speak to locals and resorts, be that guides or people working in restaurants. And and I think, you know, every, everyone is is talking about it and, and how they're adapting. And I wanted to interview people kind of on the front line of that. And I also want to it's not it's not really a doom and gloom newsletter, um, even though it might sound like that. I wanted, you know, this this thing is happening and it's real, but you know, we're all still hopefully going to live very long times um, with this as a kind of backdrop. And I just want to see about how people are noticing it and how they're adapting to it. Um, just, yeah, around kind of ski resorts all around the world. 
Yeah. Oh, and and you started it uh, back in the autumn, I think, and mm-hmm. you've been, you know, interviewed a whole number of people. Quite a lot of them have been uh, surfers. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm definitely interested in uh, reading that. And funnily mm-hmm. enough, I can't remember where I heard this the other day, but um, someone was g- giving out a stat where they're saying the carbon footprint of surfing is relatively high because uh, mm-hmm. they're actually Probably. producing the board mm-hmm. uh, and the travel and the wetsuit. Mm-hmm. And I know lots of uh, you know manufacturers are looking at ways to try and minimise uh, these sort of things. But our area is snow sports, and you've had quite a few articles about snow sports uh, in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I know you interviewed Lauren McCallum from mm-hmm. Protect Our Winters. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was uh, on the ski podcast in episode 168. Uh, also, uh, Cecile Burton from Montan Verta in Morzine. And I'm a you know, big supporter of Montan Verta. I always include them in my presentations. This is an organisation listener, if you, if you haven't come across it, uh, which is based in Morzine and really is just a brilliant, brilliant a community activated organization that's focused on um, you know bringing down the, the the carbon footprint and improving sustainability in Morzine. If you look up our sustainability special uh, podcast, I had Al Judge from Alicat uh, Holidays, who's one of the founders uh, of that. But one of your articles that really caught my attention, and I really found uh, uh, interesting, was an interview with some Just Stop Oil protesters. Now, Just Stop Oil, you know, definitely been in the uh, headlines recently. They, you know, tend to be quite uh, active at sporting events. Pretty much everyone will have will have noticed that, I should think, at something. But these guys are at a FIS event in uh, Norway. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about maybe well what they did how it came across uh, your radar and and how you tracked them down as well yeah yeah I actually think it was through Twitter I think Twitter um, sent me a clip actually of them holding up the race and yeah so in terms of what they did they did a good recce it's important to say that they really wanted to make sure that no one got hurt so they waited at the top of a hill where they knew that the cross-country skiers would have slowed down and they kind of blocked blocked their path Although, as it happened, they were kind of pulled to the side by various spectators. Um, so it was one of those ones where, where it got some really good media attention and I think was important for the cause, but didn't actually cause a huge amount of disruption um, to the cross-country skiers in the race. I think I think what was really important about that is Norway thinks of itself as a winter sports nation, markets itself as a winter sports nation, but is is kind of heavily dependent on oil, is very rich from oil. Um, and I think that the activists which include, um, it was Frida Stenbeck from Norway, Callum McIntyre, who's actually Scottish, but has lived in Norway for a long time, um, and Adam Formica. Yeah, he's actually American, that is an academic that's based in Norway. Um, and I think they just want to raise that contradiction and they wanted people to talk about it more because it felt that when they were watching the TV news, it just wasn't something that was acknowledged a lot. And I think it tries and ties into the broader point that I've tried to get into with the newsletter, which is moving away from that personal responsibility and guilting. And I think this is why skiers and snowboarders have generally not really engaged in the climate debate too much or haven't wanted to speak about it because they kind of think, well, I still want my, you know, two weeks in the mountains or one week, whatever it is. And I think what 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 I like about Just Stop Oil is they're actually saying these are big systemic changes that need to happen and and actually us as individuals we've been made to feel guilty in many ways by the the kind of fossil fuel industry which kind of created the whole concept of a carbon footprint um so it's sim- it's similar to the tobacco industry kind of muddying the water and and making us think that we're we're a huge part of the problem whereas actually um there are things that are happening at a political level at a corporate level that are that are the biggest part of the problem and actually we can be part of the solution and 
there's a lot of kind of optimism in that. Um, I think just up oil, I think they're definitely a polarizing force, but I think I just love their name because I just think it gets that concept into the news. Mm-hmm. And I think for so many of us, the idea of just stopping oil is not a radical idea. I think their tactics might be radical and they're me as an individual might perhaps not feel comfortable taking those actions myself, um, although I have massive respect to people that do. But I think it's so important that that we get this idea of, you know, moving away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. So you saw about this uh, this uh, uh, um, protest. Mm-hmm. It was at a FIS, a cross-country event in Norway. How did you then find them to interview them? Um, they were actually promoting the video on Twitter. So I messaged them and I suppose... It sort of helps that I've got quite a, a lot of articles that I've written in the past that are perhaps sympathetic to this cause, or maybe not sympathetic, but wanting to raise awareness for this course, cause. So I think that me contacted them and they could see what Climate and Board Sports was about and they could see that they were going to get a fair airing. Um, so they were actually quite quite happy to be interviewed about it. Um, I've actually since written a piece for Huck magazine and, and tried to sort of spread spread news of what they're up to as much as possible because I just think it's an interesting part of the debate. I thought that was, I mean, that was quite early in the season, if I recall uh, correctly. And we're talking about a FIS event. And, you know, there's been a lot of coverage uh, during the course of this winter where FIS athletes effectively signed a letter that was sent to FIS itself. So it, I think it stands, uh, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's the organisers, the Fédération Internationale de Ski or something, mm-hmm. organised World Championships, uh, etc. Um, to do with... The, yeah, let's say reducing the carbon footprint of FIS, but to do with rearranging the schedule, for example, so that they don't start in America, North America, come back to Europe, then go back to America again, then come to Europe again. And more recently, as because uh, I think over 300 athletes uh, signed that uh, in the end. And then more recently, there's been a study to show that, uh, you know, FIS, which claims to be a carbon neutral organization have been massaging the figures, let's say, in terms of, you know, how they're achieving that in terms of some of the offsets. Have you have you seen that story? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the the ranging events in kind of one place, I think that is probably quite an easy thing for them to do. And I think that they, they should do that. But I think, yeah, I think they've got a lot more to do. And I think that in terms of sponsorship as well and taking taking sponsorship from fossil fuels, I think Again, that seems to me a no-brainer, I think, when you're in that industry. And I think athletes are right to call that out. Um, I'm surprised more of them aren't calling it out, in truth. Um, I think it's an existential threat to their sport, um, let alone the whole world. But, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm yeah, I mean, you know, it's difficult if you're an athlete. You know, your job is to, uh, you know, race on snow. And uh, as part of that job, you're going to end up having a big carbon footprint because you're flying around the place. But I completely get what you're uh, talking about, about mm-hmm. systemic change. I'm aware that, uh, you know, the oil companies who, let's not forget, have made record profits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact, some of them have made more money in the last year than they made in their history entirely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, have made motivation uh, to to try and um, you know, pass that responsibility on to the individual but um, moving on you know do you have anyone particular lined up for future interviews that you're looking to include on the Substack? Um, I've got Vanessa Bocher um, I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name French Vanessa Bocher from who lives in La Grave because um, I'm really interested in how yeah people in La Grave are adapting to the climate crisis um I did I'm not sure if you saw I did a piece in the Guardian about Chamonix and how the guides in Chamonix are adapting um, and I actually found that yeah quite a heartening um piece to write in many ways because it was just 
yeah, the guide saying this is our situation, this is what we're going to do, and and educating customers. So sort of saying to customers, you know, when you come, you might want to ride powder down the Valley Blanche. Well, that might not be what is available that day. You've got to be more flexible in your approach. We'll be more flexible. Um, and also, yeah, some of it was a bit brutal, you know, talking about climbing routes that they used to be able to do in certain months that they can now having to do earlier in the season. But Yeah, well, you mentioned being uh, down on the Mer de Glace uh, and uh, looking at the Padachevre, which is no longer skiable uh, these days, and the number of steps, you know, back up. And I think I've referred to this on the podcast before, you know, because I actually skied uh, the Valley Blanche in about 1982 or 83 or something like that. And there weren't, there were three steps, I think, at that time, something like that. So, uh, but you mentioned that you have some optimism. What are your thoughts on the future of uh, skiing? You're talking to a lot of people, uh, you know, involved in the industry about this side of things. Do you you have optimism about it or are you generally more pessimistic? I mean, I I think I'm worried uh, a kind of, I don't think the world's governments and corporations are acting fast enough, but it was... I suppose I feel like a lot of ski resorts are mentioning it more in their marketing. It felt like this thing that they didn't want to mention in case it put people off coming. But I think there seems to be an acceptance that this thing is happening and and we want to reassure people. And I suppose people just need to expect, accept that their ski holiday might look a bit different from how it would have looked um, 10 years ago. But I think definitely still come. It's, It's not like we have to just sit in our rooms and wait for the climate crisis to unfold. It's like we're still living lives. It's important, you know, for your mental health to do the things that make you happy as long as you're not kind of doing harm to other people is, is sort of how, how I live my life. But skiing. Cool. Well, well, you know, I, that sounds like a perfect note to to finish that uh, chat on. You know, uh, I would certainly agree. I think we probably, uh, you know, all experienced uh, COVID and lockdown in different ways. But for me, the inability to get to the mountains, which is my kind of spiritual home, you know, that's where that's what makes me happy being in the mountains. Uh, you know was was very difficult so you know to be able to continue that you know is definitely uh, very important so that's brilliant Sam thank you very much for that right we're going to move towards the close now uh, I enjoy all feedback about the show uh, I do like to know what you think if you've got ideas for features uh, etc so you can contact me uh, via social at the ski podcast or by email the ski podcast at gmail.com I uh, got uh, an email, I think, from Adrian Cheeseman, who said, love the podcast, keeps me going. Even listened to it while doing the Great North Run uh, last year. So I don't know what time you did it in. Most of our episodes about an hour. Maybe you're a very fast runner. You can listen to two. Uh, if you do like the podcast, there are a couple of things you can do to help. You can review us on Apple Podcasts. I noticed that we've got 98 ratings at the moment. So maybe you, listener, could be the person who bumps it up to 99 or 100 don't wait for that 99 to come in uh alternatively you could buy me a coffee uh if you want to at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast uh, it would end up being a tea for me but it would still uh, be much appreciated uh there are over 170 episodes this is 179 to, to catch up with i had a look uh, earlier today and 123 of them were listened to uh in the last week and i had a look at our analytics and i can see that year on year listens are up 29 percent And I think probably, listener, you might be one of these people. People are finding the podcast and then going back 
and listening to all of these old episodes. Uh, so if that's you, um, I hope uh, you're enjoying the past as well. And also thank you to all of our new listeners as far afield as uh, I noticed Iran, Moldova and Thailand. So if that's you listening in one of those countries, drop us uh, an email and say hello. So you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at The Ski Podcast. Uh, but for now, I'd like to thank Letoile for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today. Sam, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Rob, thank you for joining us from France. Absolute pleasure. Bonjour, as they say. <laughs> Excellent. And listener, finally, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.